Welcome to the Joe Schmo Theology Podcast, where we discuss confessions. I ain't confessing nothing! Reformed theology. I don't know what either of those words mean. And apologetics. I am not apologizing for anything either. I am your host, Adam D. Murray, and joined with me today on this program is my brother, Aaron D. Murray. What's up, y'all? This is episode 23 of Joe Schmo Theology, the podcast where two dummies talk about smart things. I'm A.A. Ron. I'm Adam. And we are the Joe Schmo Bros, and today we will be discussing the beautiful, wonderful doctrine of the Trinity. But... Because we're a bunch of dummies, we decided to have someone come in who's a little less dumb than us. He's still Joe Schmo because he's not ordained yet. His name is Jay Duran. He is a pastoral intern here at Second RP from the wonderful, beautiful country of India. Jay, introduce yourself. Oh, hi guys. My name is Jay Duran and I'm a pastoral intern here at Second RP. Don't say the same thing that I just said. Do you something what, new. What yeah, else? You just introduced me, and you, what more should you want to know? Okay, like? all right. So, what uh, what seminary are you going to? Yeah, I'm I am a student at the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary at Pittsburgh, and I've just completed my first year, and I have two more years to go. Fantastic. And you hope to plant a church in India? Correct? Yeah, my mission is to go back to India and plant a church back uh, in South India, where I come from. Mm-hmm. Nice. And you want to share more about that, or sure, why not? Give, give us maybe two minutes on that. Like, yeah, so I come from the southern, southwestern state of Kerala, and the plan is to go back and start planting churches there. We do have a church uh, already planted, so the Reformed Presbyterian movement is has made its uh, first step, pioneering step in Bangalore, which is sort of four hundred miles north of where I come from. Uh, so my plan is to go back to Kerala, which is uh, historically and strategically an important state because that's where. Indian Christianity began in one sense, 2,000 years ago, at least tradition goes that uh, Apostle Thomas came to India, and that's my state. And so strategically for Indian Christianity, uh, this is a very important place that you reach um, uh, in terms of um, launching a new denomination. So that's that's the whole game plan that I'm aiming. Go back and plant churches there. Wonderful. Wonderful. Awesome. Yeah. And I don't think anybody cares about your trip to Michigan or my new job. So no. That pretty much sums up yeah. where we're at. I'm just going to skip that. Okay. Over. So, uh, we were talking about the Trinity. That was something on our list to uh, talk about in the future. But Jay has been, um, with the help of one of our associate pastors, one, the only associate pastor. We're kind of a <coughs> mega church in the RPCNA, having two pastors. <laughs> having two pastors. Um, <laughs> oh, by the way, the RPCNA has a church in India. How's uh, College Park doing? Yeah, actually. Yeah. College Park's great about missions. There's, a, there's definitely at least a strategic partnership out there um, that they work with a school working with equipping um, Indian people and pastors. So Good, good, good. So anyways, Jay, with our associate pastor, Joel Hart, has been teaching a wonderful Sunday school class on the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed um, kind of follows a Trinitarian structure in that I believe in God the Father, talks about Jesus Christ, talks about the Holy Spirit. So Jay, you spent three weeks just giving us, you know, it would be like drinking out of a fire hydrant on the Trinity. So that's why I wanted you to come on here and kind of condense those three-hour materials into 45 minutes. So when thinking about the Trinity, let's just pretend that nobody knows what it is. So how would you um, introduce this topic of Trinitarianism within Christianity? 
uh, within Christianity, and it's like, so the person I'm talking to is a Christian, or uh, what if they're Unitarian, maybe maybe Muslim, um, don't understand the concept of the Trinity. Yeah, I mean, so um, well, my whole argument is that um, when you look at the New Testament and. I do believe the Trinity is evident even in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there's a clear revelation of this doctrine when it comes to the New Testament. Uh, my argument is, and this is um, something many theologians argue, but the reason why the Trinity is considered to be such an important doctrine that we call it one of the cardinal doctrines, it is a boundary marker of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not a doctrine on which we can agree to disagree and still be uh, brothers. Uh, in, in inside our faith. So this is such an important doctrine, not simply because it's a doctrine about our God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because it, when you look at New Testament Christ- Christianity, every facet of New Testament Christianity is deeply Trinitarian. In other words, you cannot deny the doctrine of Trinity and talk about prayer mm-hmm. or salvation or worship mm-hmm. or ministry or missions. You name it, uh, everything has uh, a Trinitarian shape or a Trinitarian aspect to it. So how do we like introduce Trinity to someone? I will say this is such a, 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 a foundational aspect of Christianity that if you're learning Trinity, you're learning Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's that foundational and fundamental. Now, what is Trinity? Trinity is basically uh, uh, who God is um, as to his essence. So we all believe uh, um, that there is only one God, mm-hmm. uh, monotheism, as we will put it. But uh, in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, and when I say New Testament, I'm repeating myself. It doesn't mean there is nothing like that in the Old Testament. I'm saying, especially in the New Testament, we see that there is a lot more... Um, uh, specificity that mm-hmm. we see as to who God is and my favorite verse to go is in John chapter 17 mm-hmm. and verse uh, 26 where Jesus says I made, uh, I made known to them so this is for those of you who are not familiar uh, John 17 is Jesus's high priestly prayer this is his you know time with the uh, disciples before he gets betrayed and before he goes to the cross so this is his final time of teaching and uh, praying with his disciples before he goes and suffers for us. In John chapter 17, the last verse, uh, the Lord says, I made known to them your name. So he's praying to the Father and he's saying, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known uh, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Uh, we might touch on some of these things later, but here I find in the New Testament, Jesus himself saying why the doctrine of Trinity is revealed Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. The reason why we need to know that it's not just there is only one God, but that that God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I've revealed that there is a Father, Mm -hmm. and I am the Son. The reason I've revealed it so that you may know, uh, that the disciples may know the love with which they have been loved. So the gospel is at stake here. The gospel Mm -hmm. is not simply God loves you. Uh, the gospel is the Father loves you as he loves the Son. You will not understand this by denying Trinity or not understanding Trinity. So mm. Trinity is so crucial for understanding the gospel, for practicing New Testament Christianity, that this is absolutely essential to our faith. Mm. So that's the direction in which I'll begin that conversation. Sure, very good. And we have officially graduated from being the Joe Schmo Theology Podcast to RPTS Light. <laughs> We're six minutes in. This is the best podcast we've ever done by far. Uh, it's one thing to talk about great things. That doesn't mean anything about the speaker. So. <laughs> sure. I'm still Joe Schmo. Right. So um, as, as you've got that foundation laid, just how important the Trinity is for Christianity, um, now... Um, convince me that I believe this, right? but pretend that I am just yeah, somebody yeah. convince me that the Trinity is 
something that is actually biblical. Okay, uh, so let me t- and this is something you know that even uh, people who deny the Trinity, you know, cults will uh, force us to ask. Now, the, before we a- before I answer that, I need to explain the approach I'm using it. Uh, now, the doctrine of Trinity. Um, is not a proof text doctrine. It's not like, you know, you pick a verse and you say, there is the Trinity, sure. you know, even though there are some verses I believe you can go. But we need to understand the nature of this doctrine. What is the doctrine of Trinity? First of all, the do- name, the, the label Trinity is not found in the Bible. So it is a theological term uh, Christians have come up with to refer to a concept they find in the scriptures. And why do they use this extra biblical term? Um, well, if you look at the doctrine of Trinity, my, my way of explaining is Trinity is a, a synthesis, it's a summary of three strands of teaching that we find in the Bible. So Bible teaches, first of all, there is only one God, uh, the strand of monotheism. But we also find in the New Testament that the New Testament affirms there are three distinct persons within uh, this one being. And then thirdly, we find all these three persons are co-equal mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their divinity, their eternality, and their uh, you know, divine substance. So if you have all these three truths and you affirm them, uh, the conclusion is what we call the doctrine of Trinity. Mm-hmm. So when you look for biblical uh, foundations or justification or scriptural warrant for this, you have to understand it comes in this form, these three strands. So you have to look at these three strands independently, like um, individually rather. Okay, does the Bible teach there is only one God? I mean, there's, from cover to cover, the Bible teaches there is only one God. Does the New Testament reveal there are three distinct persons? And you can go all around the place in the New Testament and find, yes, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are presented to us as three distinct persons. Um, all of them are um, divine in essence, and they are distinct. Mm-hmm. The Father speaks mm-hmm. to the Son, the Son, the Spirit, and uh, it's, these are not three different titles or roles. They are three distinct uh, persons or senders of consciousness, if person is a, a difficult term to understand. And then we also find they are, they are equal. There is there is an order in Trinity, but there is no hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's not like uh, 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 three gods coming together and doing something. It's also not uh, one superior god with two smaller gods. You know, mm-hmm. Those are all false understandings, but we find all three of them are equally worshipped. Mm-hmm. All three of them are presented as God. Um, and so you you can look at these three strands and find that the New Testament uh, teaches all of them. And so what's the what's the end conclusion? We have to say the doctrine of Trinity is clearly biblical. Sure. So that will be the approach in which you can go ahead and, and show that. Sure. So that, that kind of leads into maybe another question. So the, the persons within the Godhead. So uh-huh. um, I think for the most part, people can easily get behind the personhood of the Father and the personhood of the Son. But when it comes to the personhood of the Holy Spirit, my mm-hmm. sense is that a lot of people get tripped up on that or um, they're not as confident in that as they are the other two. Okay. Um, how would you encourage someone who kind of is facing that dilemma? Uh, the personhood of the Spirit. Specifically the Spirit. Are you just talking about in the sense that there's some like teaching out there that the spirit is not an individual person, but it's just like the spirit of God. So there's the father and there's the son, but the spirit is actually like the spirit of the father. It's not a separate being. Is that what you're getting at? Right. Or, or some like uh, spiritual life force. Right. Like kind of thing. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Not, not, not a person. Yeah. 
So there's right. no personhood, like there's life force. Like yeah, okay. yes. Yeah, um, that's a, a common, you know, there are cults who will say, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is just um, a force or a power, uh, something like that, that, you know, he's not really a distinct person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that it does justification to scripture. I mean, there are many places we can go where he is clearly, uh, first of all, affirmed as divine. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to First Corinthians 6 and First Corinthians 3, you know. First uh, Corinthians 3 says you are the temple of the living God, and then First Corinthians 6 says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you put them together, it is clearly God. Or you can go to places where his distinct personhood is uh, clearly mentioned. For example, my favorite example is Ananias and Sapphira. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're clearly, they're, you know, Peter says you have lied to God, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. How can he lie to a force or a power or something immaterial? You know, I can't lie to electricity and right. I can't lie to you know, wind or something like that. Mm-hmm. So here, he, clearly he he is a person. Uh, some of the sins you can commit against the Holy Spirit that, that we find in the scriptures, like grieving the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit mm-hmm. or quenching the Holy Spirit. Those are all uh, personal things you do to someone. So those are all ways in which I would say the Bible clearly proves that he is not a person. Uh, sorry, he's not a force. He's actually right. a person. Uh, I was thinking of the pronoun sometimes used when people use it. Right. 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 I remember yes. once yes. I was teaching Trinity and one of the brothers uh, wrote down, it is not a person. <laughs> and said, oh, come on. <laughs> it, it, he is a person. You know? mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the ways in which I would uh, point out. Um, um, implicitly, the scripture does affirm his personhood. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and also with him being equated with the Father and the Son as distinct. So there is equation going on that they are same in terms of their divine essence, but at the same time there is a distinct personhood. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jesus says, I will send you another comforter. And right. the, all the, you know, so my problem with those cults which merely say the Spirit is a power or a force or something like that is you are not doing justification to the full language of Scripture. So I think if you... If you take the language of Scripture and go where Scripture goes, then you cannot deny uh, the person with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Very good. And then you had mentioned um, there's no hierarchy in the Trinity. So maybe if you could kind of talk about um, the difference between the ontological and economic, maybe define those words yeah. um, within the Trinity. Yeah, so theologians speak about, you know, um, the essential trinity and the economic trinity, if you want to get away that word ontological. Sure. Um, and in, in both cases, there is no hierarchy. Now, I'll come to that after defining this. So essential trinity or ontological trinity is basically uh, trinity as such before the trinity does anything outside of God, like creation, redemption, or anything like that. So, uh, from all, you know, so this is a question I'm sure you, you guys will hear, you know. People saying, and especially Aaron, you might hear pretty soon mm-hmm. when, when your son grows up, you know, what was God doing before he created all things, you know, because he existed <laughs> from all eternity. So what was he right, doing right. before he created? I mean, and, and the answer is Trinity. Mm-hmm. God was from all eternity loving his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always giving the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit communicating his love to his son. And the son, same way, was communicating his love back to the Father. And so that life of God, uh, that those mutual interrelation relationship of God before he did anything is what we mean by essential or ontological trinity. But when it comes to creation, when it comes to redemption, as 
as God enters into history, we find there is an order. Mm-hmm. So the Father always initiates and plans things, uh, whether it's creation or redemption. Um, and then the Son is always the means through which he accomplishes it. So through the Word, he created all things. You know, Through the Son, he accomplishes redemption. And then the <coughs> Spirit is the means by which um, that work is established or applied. So when it comes to... Um, um, redemption, you know, specifically speaking, it's the spirit which applies that work in our hearts and uh, in time brings all of us to faith. So uh, we find an order there, you know, father begins, son accomplishes, and then the spirit applies. But order does not mean uh, that um, they are, there is a hierarchy. And, and in the order, you might find uh, functional submission of mm-hmm. the Son and the Spirit to the Father. But it's only functional. It is not ontological. In other words, that submission uh, is only as they fulfill these various roles mm-hmm. they, they do in creation and redemption. It is not part of how God exists mm-hmm. as Trinity. Yeah. That's why we say it's not ontological. It's mm-hmm. not essential. That submission is not essential. Because the reason why we don't go there is if you say it is essential, that the Son and the Spirit are um, sort of under the Father, then you're denying that third strand we were saying, that they're equal in divinity mm-hmm. and eternity in all the way, you know. So we want to do justice to everything Scripture says, that all these three persons are equal when it comes to deity and when it comes to their eternality and their power and authority and all of that. But at the same time, we find, especially in Scripture, in New Testament, we find Role-wise, there is a submission. So that's why we say it's only functional. It is only in the economy of redemption that Mm -hmm. we find that submission. Uh, So it's only, it's like marriage, you know. This is where marriage gets uh, uh, some of its implications from Trinity. So husband and wife, man and uh, woman are created in the image of God. Essentially, they are the same. There is no inferiority, superiority aspect to man or woman. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to roles, the wife submits. So it's something like that. There is a mirroring of Trinity in marriage, I would say. Um, So it's only functional. Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) When we decided we were going to do Trinity, I was wondering if we were ever going to touch on that eternal subordination function debate that was going on a couple years ago. So I'm glad you hit on that. I also love that you talked about... um, before the creation of the world, the mm-hmm. self-sufficiency of Christ, the mm-hmm. the unity and the harmony yeah. um, that, that was in the Trinity um, and still is in the Trinity. But I, that was always something that was like hard for me to grasp as a kid, too. And now I hear there's all kinds of teaching out there. I mean, there's even a popular song out there that starts off with, you didn't want heaven without us. You know, I'm sure you've, you've heard that. No, you know, we sing the songs. We don't know what uh, right, right, right. But, you know, well, God's well, word. Well, that would be wrong in or out of the church. So... Um, <laughs> So no argument for me, but you know, like that that teaching goes on all the time. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I've heard that song by the way. Yeah. See, see. Um, Reasons why we sing songs. Yes, yeah, seriously. <laughs> More see, I knew, actually, I knew as soon as I said something. Well, so it's interesting you bring that up because we just pretended we're going to talk about the Trinity. Now we're actually going to convince you of Here we go. Presbyterianism and then Baptism. Well, on that front, I would just say this. I don't know whether we need to explore this option, but. I personally, so just to let you know some of my story, um, before I became, um, 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 you know, a Reformed Presbyterian in any form, you know, the first thing that I sort of uh, embraced as far as this trajectory of becoming a Reformed Presbyterian, I I come from a Hindu family, so I don't have any Christian background, um, but then I gradually moved in this direction and I was a 
staunch Reformed Baptist for eight years of my life. Mm-hmm. So, but the first conviction that I had in moving this direction was uh, embracing exclusive psalmody, and I had not read a single thing on uh, regulative principle of worship or any of these arguments mm-hmm. that we hear, but. The doctrine of Trinity is what actually got me there. Really? Okay, so, so that's explain that. Yeah. I kind of want to see where you got. <laughs> so, um, my interest in personal interest in the doctrine of Trinity. So, first, per, let me just say my my favorite doctrine to teach and to learn is the doctrine of God. So, any systematic theology out there, I have read Volume One, and the rest I've sort of <laughs> not read it. <laughs> so, you you name any systematic theology out there, I've read the doctrine of God. Like Bavin Volume One is my favorite. So. Um, um, and and the reason I got involved in Trinity was that I was part of a mega church initially, um, a charismatic evangelical mega church, where uh, unfortunately at one point of time uh, a cult was really attacking them uh, with anti-Trinitarian uh, tracts and things like mm-hmm. that, and um, uh, oneness Pentecostals were, and, uh, and I'm told that they are even here in Indiana. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So, all the ones, yeah. Yeah, so oneness Pentecostal tracts were floating inside the church and there are a lot of people who are not clearly founded on scripture getting convinced by that and the pastor of that church came to me and I said Jake could you help me I know you're into all this theology stuff could you help me and my struggle was that you know uh, resources on Trinity fall into two categories one is you know they're plumbing into the depths of metaphysics (laughs) on the the logical discussion that you can't give it to a pastor or or someone in India and say hey go ahead and read it and you're Mm -hmm. itch with (laughs) (laughs) anti-Trinitarian they'll be like this is precisely why we are anti-Trinitarians because of all this philosophical language and logic when we want Mm -hmm. simply upon the simple language of scripture you know Uh, on the other hand Trinitarian uh, resources fall into the completely simplistic, you know, uh, look at the egg or look right. at the yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, water the or water, something, you know, yeah. something like that, which is absolutely ridiculous, I would say. So I didn't find anything in the middle. And so finally what happened, uh, ended up happening was I had to write a paper on my own, which was the first theological paper I wrote. And I had to study this doctrine really well. And as I studied it, I, I was in, in the, and so it went into, it had three sections. And what is the doctrine of Trinity? Is it really biblical? And what is the practical application of Trinity. And as I was unpacking the practical application of Trinity, one section was Trinity and our worship. And I was reading on people who are not exclusive psalmists, who are not Reformed Presbyterians, but they were all pointing out how uh, that Trinitarian uh, order that we just mentioned, that um, it, how it affects worship. So my favorite passage is uh, Hebrews chapter 2. So Adam, if you want to go there. <laughs> go in there. Uh, oh, because man. this whole section is dedicated. I'm going to have it. I promise I won't So in Hebrews chapter 2, and this, and this again, there's another beautiful aspect about this is actually Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is quoting um, uh, Psalms. So Hebrews chapter 2, 12, uh, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And if you look at this, there is, there, there is everything you need to know about corporate worship. Uh, here is the Christology of corporate worship. Uh, because first of all, this is Jesus saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, which is revelation, which mm-hmm. comes from God to man. So he's saying, I'm the mediator who mediates revelation from God to man. But at the same time, look at this. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Jesus is not just the mediator of God's revelation to man. He's also the mediator of man's worship to God. Mm-hmm. And that was mind-blowing for me, you know. And uh, there is a Reformed theologian by the name of Ron Mann 
who has actually written a very good uh, monograph on the Christology of worship. And he, this, this is the verse he goes and unpacks. So I would recommend anybody who's uh, reading it. Back then when I was doing this research and I was studying this, it was available online, the whole thing, because it was not published. But right now I think uh, Whip and Stock has uh, this book available. So if you want to study this passage, and, and he's not a former Presbyterian as, as much as I understand but he clearly points out how jesus christ is the mediator of our worship even our songs now that makes you ask the question what are those songs what is this song in the midst of the congregation i'll sing your praise what songs did jesus sing when he was on this earth because it doesn't merely say i will mediate like in the sense uh you know your worship is unrighteous so it has to be covered in the righteousness of jesus and presented before god it doesn't say in the midst of the congregation, I will receive their praise and offer it to you. It says, I am singing. Mm -hmm. So there are some songs which Jesus have actually sung, which we now participate because he's our mediator. And the only answer for that, uh, the, the, the songs that Christ sang in the days of his humiliation while he was on this earth, is the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I came to the conclusion. Mm -hmm. Psalms are the most fitting I didn't have the term exclusive back then, but Psalms are the most fitting songs for a group of people who now through union with Christ sing praises to God. Mm -hmm. Back then I didn't know a single Reformed Presbyterian at that time. <laughs> and I didn't know this position is called exclusive psalm. And then you're like, where I didn't I even church where we do I this? didn't even know that there is something called a psalter. Wow. Mm -hmm. I just had a position where I thought singing songs is the most fitting thing mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. So just just uh, uh, an RP rant there. Sure. So <laughs> but, but the doctrine of Trinity, I'm saying. So, uh, I would argue, now that I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, I would argue that our worship is the most consistently Trinitarian worship. Sure. Okay. <laughs> well, that, that, that's awesome. With no offense to our, our, our descending brothers. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, so if nothing else, that, that stirs my heart. Yeah, so I would, I would encourage our, our brothers outside our communion that... If, if, if you can't accept the exclusive part, this is a huge argument why you should include <laughs> psalms in your worship. Right, right. Whether you're exclusive or not, completely avoiding psalms makes no sense. You're just an incrementalist. You know that once you start, you know, that you take a step. Experientially, you know, you take you, a, yes. Right. Experientially, the psalms will win you over. But I'm saying, <laughs> if you see this, and you, there's no justification as to why you should not. And that's why I think the church, I personally don't know and don't believe that the church has always held the exclusive psalmody position. Mm -hmm. I think that was a position, I think it's historic and I think it's consistent and all of that. But it is, it is undeniable that the churches, the vast majority of church history period that you take, the church has always been inclusive psalmody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Completely avoiding and no psalms, just reading it, that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. That is completely ahistoric, I would say, yes, you know, sure. or unhistoric. Yeah. Okay, I think we hit no, no, that's right. good. So, so that's, awesome. that's, that's, that's how good. the that Trinity good. affects our, our worship. You said the Trinity affects our mission. So our missions yeah. and, you know, Adam coming from College Park, they are awesome at missions. You're wanting to plan a church and everything. So yeah. this would be relevant to our discussion. How does the Trinity affect our missions? Okay. Um, I would say in two ways. One, um, 
Our God is a missionary God, and so if you look at even the persons of the Trinity, the Father sends the Son, mm-hmm. and then the Father and the Son sends the Spirit, and then the Spirit now sends the Church. So you can see this sending is actually part of this economy of redemption. So mm-hmm. uh, our our going forth, whether it is to the outskirts of the city or our going forth to uh, yeah, the other corners of the earth, is actually patterned after uh, the persons of the Trinity sending one another you know, uh, to this earth to fulfill their mission. So there is a mirroring uh, or a reflecting of that. Uh, but more crucially, I think if you go to the Great Commission passage, you can see how um, Great Commission is it's not just a good idea. It is something that it's a mandate given to the church, which will be uh, which which the church can confidently move ahead and do, knowing that this is the mission of the Triune God. So the Father sent the Son to accomplish redemption, and the Son now sends the Spirit to apply redemption, and we are mere instruments in applying that, you know, taking that message which the Spirit uses to apply the redemption. So that, knowing that this is the mission of the triune God, gives us so much confidence uh, that this this great commission will not fail. So those are some of the ways in which I'll begin that conversation as to how um, Trinity affects our missions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, let's uh, yeah. let's play a game real quick. Yeah. Um, everyone can catch their breath. So uh, I was planning on asking this question when we started before we kind of got into the exclusive Sunday discussion. <laughs> but this this J is is for you. So we're playing Would You Rather. So basically, the way this oh, game gosh. works uh, is I, I ask you I ask you two separate scenarios, which for you are going to be less than ideal then you're able to ask me questions about it and I'll give you answers to those questions. And then eventually you're going to have to make a decision on which one you would rather do. You cannot say neither, you have to say one or the other. Savvy? Understand? Uh, I think I got most okay. of that, okay. but if I make mistakes... No, 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 it's fine. Yeah. That's just a stupid thing. <laughs> yeah. Jay. Yes. Would you rather go to a Presbyterian church that does not sing the Psalms or go to a Reformed Baptist church that does exclusively a cappella. Ah, oh, wow, that's an incredible question. Come to the dark side. As much as singing of psalms is important to me, I don't know whether I take it to that level that, you know, um, I would rather go to a church which sings psalms, but on everything else, I have big disagreements. So this is a scenario I'm not very sure how I decide. So my answer would be, yes, singing of psalms is great and good, (coughs) Mm -hmm. but I won't make that as the only issue on which. So if the Reformed Baptist Church would sing psalms is more faithful in proclaiming the gospel, while the Presbyterian Church, which doesn't sing uh, psalms, is also liberal. Well, they're not. Okay, these then, are both. These are both then, really good. Then, okay, but no, so no, no, no. my my argument. Really good so, churches, but then, both of them. But then, yeah. So that's why I was saying psalm singing alone is not a criteria for me. Okay, that's what I was. Saying. I see. So, yeah. so you would still go to the Presbyterian, Presbyterian church, which doesn't sing psalms. Okay, and persuade gonna, my brothers that you are so wrong it. with your Presbyterian <laughs> history because I think there's a greater chance in persuading the Presbyterians to sing psalms than any other group because. Hey, do you guys believe in Westminster Confession? Yes. What does <laughs> well, it say about well, singing? For that one little so, yeah. so, so what if this Presbyterian church 
only sang songs from like Bethel. Ooh, ooh, good. Yeah, or okay. Hillsong. Yeah. Then, 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 Hillsong. then it's very That's easy. The then team, singing so. becomes the only issue for me. I quit that church. <laughs> my life. <laughs> and I'll go to any church which sings anything sensible. <laughs> uh, Bethel, uh, Redding, California is uh, a red flag for me. Yes. That's heresy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, and I come from Kerala, uh, that part of India which um, receives the maximum export of all this uh, fad and nonsense from uh, the charismatic zoo in the United States. Mm-hmm. So everything gets exported there uh, through all this uh, Christian TV. And so I see the fruit of all this nonsense produced here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen people's lives messed up. Sure. So I, for me, it's not merely a doctrinal reaction. I've seen the fruit of all this in some of the most impoverished parts of uh, the world. And impoverished in the sense, theologically impoverished mm-hmm. parts of the world. So, so I made that choice too easy. <laughs> yeah, it's very I should have picked a different yeah, band. Bethel, <laughs> None of that soaking. All right. What if the what if the Presbyterians were Armenian? So you know, so these, these, these are these are these are Bible are... reading. These are these are these are praying Christian people. Yeah. But <laughs> like, why count. are you trying? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm wait, just wait, 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 wait a minute. All these what if questions are going to be on the same. Presbyterian Baptist thing. Yes, you know? it's okay. the same thing. So this is this is the Presbyterian Church. I didn't know that. Okay, so the new scenario is the Presbyterians do what? The Presbyterians are they're, which I don't even know how this. They happened, don't sing psalms, but they, they don't sing psalms, and and they're Arminian. But okay. other than that, other than those two things, they're you know they're going to be in heaven, right? So they're good people. No, okay. because of you know Nobody's what I mean. Good, yeah. You know what I mean. <laughs> the throats are open graves. They're, 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 they're Arminian. They don't know that. <laughs> That's a very yeah, we, yeah. Statement. Okay. That, do you go to that church by the way? It sounds like you do. No. They're all good. Yeah, they right. go to heaven. Okay, looking at my own life, I've been part of churches which are being largely Armenian, so mm-hmm. yeah. I have actually gone to that church, okay. which is Armenian and doesn't sing songs. And and it's not even Presbyterian. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't I don't imagine many Presbyterian churches would be and name Armenian. I don't know. That, that may not be true. I don't know. Maybe the PCUSA. I don't know. Well, they they don't count as anything. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that game um, was okay. It wasn't our worst, actually. So. No, this wasn't a dumb joke. Yeah. Okay. Well, that joke was awesome. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Okay. Uh, what questions do you have for our man Jay? Uh, I, I want to talk about some of the other um, ideas about the nature of God out there. For instance. Like, could you explain what modalism is and where it goes wrong and what the implications of it are? Yeah, so um, I mentioned there are three strands that we find in the doctrine of Trinity. So monotheism, the distinct personhood of the persons found in Trinity. And then the third is the co-eternality and co-equality of the three persons. If you deny any of these three, you end up in a major uh, heresy. And so modalism would be, they would affirm the monotheism of God, but they will deny the second strand, which is the distinct personhoods. Mm -hmm. So there's only one person. So they turn monotheism to be uh, suggesting Unitarianism. Mm -hmm. One God necessarily means one person God. Mm -hmm. And that's where the error comes. And so the reason why we call it modalism is they think, they do read the scriptures and find there is a Father and a Son and the Holy Spirit. 
what do you do with that they say that's just distinct or different modes or manifestation that's the common language you find manifestation uh, modes or manifestation of the same god so it is like um, aaron is uh, is a man is uh, uh, he's Go a on. son at the same at the same time a father and a husband but there are no three Aaron's out there who is the father Aaron and the son Aaron and the husband Aaron. These are three roles that he fulfills. So that's how they see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the real God and the Son is the Father in the flesh. And the Spirit is, uh, you know, him pouring out his Spirit right now after he has gone to heaven. But that doesn't make any, uh, again, back to the same problem. How, how do we justify the language of Scripture? Uh, it's fascinating that these cults say, you know, you guys, all, all of you... Uh, Orthodox, you know, Protestant, uh, Orthodox Christians, not necessarily Protestants. You all find all this philosophical language, and you know, this was the uh, the argument we, even back in the fourth century when we had all these Trinitarian debates. So the heretics were always saying, "We go to the simple language of Scripture," you know, and the the problem is these cults are the ones who are not doing justice to the language mm-hmm. of Scripture. For example, the baptism of Jesus or the prayers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you explain that in a moralistic view? Jesus speaking to himself, I mean, Jesus speaking to the mode that he was uh, before he became a man. I mean, it makes no sense. Mords cannot speak to each other. Right. (laughs) So uh, the relational language between the persons of the Trinity that we find in the New Testament is completely uh, um, uh, avoided and not uh, given due justice in these kind of models. You know? mm-hmm. So modelism is a heresy, and modelism is what is embraced by oneness Pentecostals and right. Unitarians. Sure. And, uh, and there is a distinction between <coughs> Unitarians and uh, oneness Pentecostals, uh, um, and that has to do with uh, whether they affirm a, a, a deity of the sun as such. You know? So I don't want to go there much, but for us as Trinitarians, you know, um, Unitarianism is, is a heresy, and this is what Islam is. So it's not just mm-hmm. Christian cults; it goes beyond that. Um, monotheism um, being assumed as suggesting Unitarianism uh, is something even Islam uh, logically believes, and that's why they say there is only one God, and He doesn't have any son, mm-hmm. which is one of the creedal statements, right? Right. So, so you mentioned um, about the deity of, of Christ, the deity of the Son, yeah. um, on on something similar to those lines. Can you talk to us a little bit about Arianism and where that came from and yeah. what it means? Yeah, so... Um, the history of the two of you. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I can go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for, for hours. Here we go. Buckle up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's... Um, Arianism happens when we deny the third strand, which is uh, that all these three persons are equal in their uh, divinity and their eternality. There is no um, God the Father being the real God and the Son and the Spirit being some lesser God. That's where Arianism comes. So uh, classical Arianism suggested that the Son is uh, not same in substance, but similar in substance. So he was a God, a lesser God, a small letter G God or something like that. And um, and, and therefore, uh, the equality of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is uh, denied. And then some weird forms like Jehovah's Witnesses, who will probably be grandchildren of Arianism today, they, mm-hmm. they completely deny the Spirit and think Spirit is some sort of power. You know. mm-hmm. uh, again, the problem is the language of Scripture would not let us go there. Um, the third strand we find, which is 
Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in their divinity uh, would be our argument back in saying no. Um, we don't find that in scripture that the Son is a lesser God or a God or a separate you know, God who is uh, uh, smaller or uh, uh, less in stature than the Father. Like I mentioned earlier that uh, there are passages of scripture you can do, go and do proof texting, you know, be careful This is not the only proof and uh, don't think just by proof texting approved the Trinity We need the whole of scripture in the language of scripture and uh, Trinity is a very um, Detailed doctrine and you need a lot of scripture to uh, show its richness and its variety But there are passages of scripture we can go and even in the classic uh, debate, you know, Athanasius and the Arians, they use this so the famous verse this is for the Joshmos out there <laughs> if you want to go for one verse and this is my favorite verse go to the Great Commission passage you know go ye into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit now you find that uh, if we find that all these three truths mentioned there uh, baptize them in the name so it's not names mm -hmm. so it's not tritheism it's not uh, pluralism it's not three gods it's one name one being uh, so there's only one God but then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's not Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the definite article there uh, clearly communicates uh, a distinct person there. And then they're all equated, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what Athanasius said. How can you baptize uh, someone in the name of God and a creature mm -hmm. or and a lesser God or something like that? It's clearly uh, they, they all have the same uh, divinity, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are all equated with that and in the middle. So there is equality, there is distinction of their personhood, and they're one in being. Mm -hmm. So it's implicit. That's not the point of that verse to teach you Trinity, but it's implicit as it unpacks the Great Commission. It does uh, touch upon the three essential strands of what makes the concept of Trinity. Mm -hmm. So it's that equality which uh, Arians um, denied, and the church studied scriptures and said you guys are heretics <laughs> so so am, am i right in thinking that arius had a famous statement that there was a time that the sun was not was that him or what did he just believe that there was not equality with god not that he, there was a time when he was I'm, created i'm not an expert in heresy so okay i'm not an Arius, so I mean, he might have said that okay um, uh, you you have to I mean if you this is the problem if you if you deny the co-eternality of the three persons right. then you are all in, in, in principle saying only the father was eternal and at some point he created a lesser God or a smaller God or something like that or someone who is similar to him so we do we do run into that risk of uh, when did the second person or the third person or I don't even know what they use the language of the persons but when did that being began you know, right. or that uh, subsistence began so um, Arius might may or may not have said that I'm not clearly remembering that statement but one thing to know that is it's heretical okay. <laughs> yeah. right. so we've got we've got the three strands that, that make up the Trinity yeah um, the first two we've talked about um, the co-eternality yeah. right and yeah. the um, three persons the three persons so what what happens if you deny the third strand uh, which is actually the first trend I mentioned, monotheism, okay. which right. if you deny, you end up in tritheism. Right. Now, I don't think Western Christians face so much of a problem with tritheism. Uh, classically, it has been an issue with Eastern Christians. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the Cappadocian fathers actually has a book called uh, Not 
three gods. <laughs> I think it's one of the Gregories. Uh, but um, I think places like India, we run into the rest of in Hinduism. There is something called the Hindu Trinity, mm-hmm. which is basically three gods who just love each other mm-hmm. and just love to hang out together and do things. Uh, and so like you, can, shack, you, right? you can, you <laughs> can, yeah, maybe shack. Yeah. <laughs> even shack could be so. It, when we say you know God is love and God loves the Father loves the Son and all that, we are not saying that three gods, like three beings, who just love to be together. You know, uh, we are saying there is only one being, one divine uh, uh, substance called God. But then this divine substance is shared by um, three persons. Now this is something that intellectually it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, and that's why. Um, this is beyond us in one sense, uh, but the, you know the classical definitions of Trinity is always you know one God is one in substance and three in persons mm-hmm. or three in subsistence. So even that word subsistence, you know, under uh, you know under this substance there is an existence which mm-hmm. you know uh, speaks about the persons. So um, if you deny monotheism, you end up with three gods, which goes against the complete teaching of Scripture. There is only one God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Western Christians may not have much of an issue, but in pluralistic societies like India and Eastern world, we do run that risk. Sure. You know. sure. Yeah. Sure. So, um, kind of going back to the um, personhood of the Son. So, Psalm two we know is about Jesus ultimately. You know, yeah. Why do Gentiles yeah. nations rage? Blah blah blah. You know this is going. Okay. So, verse seven says, "I will tell of the decrees. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you.' So." What does that mean, today I have begotten you? Yeah, which, first of all, we have to understand Psalm 2 as a psalm of David before we jump ahead and point to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because what does it mean for David, today I have begotten you? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not talking about his birthday, mm-hmm. right? It's talking about the day he, he ascends to the throne of, uh, of, of, of Israel. Mm-hmm. And kings of Israel are called sons of God because they functionally represent and reflect God. And so um, that that functional sonship mm-hmm. begins on the day of your ascension. So today I have begotten you um, refers to the day of his uh, coronation. Now for Jesus, which is that day when he um, um, uh, dis- decisively becomes the king, mm-hmm. uh, in one sense, Jesus has always been the king. He's always the son of God. And he has always been the king of everything. Uh, but from the vantage point of being the Christ, being someone who's come down and embraced the flesh and um, and, and, and embraced all the humiliation that comes with being man. Uh, so as the Christ, as the mediator, as the God-man, when, 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 when does he ascend to the throne of God? Well, clearly it is resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the day in on which he is begotten, and we have to understand begotten there means your sonship, um, uh, your your kingship, rather. Um, so today refers to his resurrection, and this is not something I'm saying. And if you turn to right. Acts chapter Acts. thirteen, mm-hmm. this is exactly the point of Apostle Paul, because he picks up Psalm chapter two, verse seven, and then says, you know, for this verse, uh, resurrection has to happen. So Paul clearly sees that the day, that today, uh, where uh, which Psalm two speaks about, refers to the day on which um, 
the Lord uh, raised up Jesus. So Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 32 and following. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And then here is his uh, proof text. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so uh, the, the very fact that Jesus, God has raised Jesus uh, proves this day, this day, uh, in which I will declare your sonship, I will uh, raise you to be the king of my people, has come. Mm -hmm. um, so the, that's the day. I thought I'd stop you on that one. I was like, ooh, maybe he'll start like stumbling over his words a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, a little bit. No, I, 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 uh, I'm curious to know uh, where you were going with that in our discussion of Trinity. Well, so uh, as far as um, Arianism would say, you know, the son is created. So, um, and I've heard a lot of people use that verse to say, okay, the son is begotten. You know, here it says that today I have begotten you. Yeah. So a lot of people will, will say, okay, begotten means created. Therefore, the son is created. Therefore, the son is not God. Therefore, not There is a difference between begotten and creation. Right. Uh, that's that, right. that'd be one thing. Uh, but the classical Christian statement has been, yes, we do believe the son is begotten, but he is eternally begotten. Uh, that's Right. I, I want to say to understand, but a creed or confession, I can't remember which one, would say um, Jesus was begotten, not made. I can't remember where, well, where I've heard that. That's the Nicene Creed. Nicene, thank you, duh. The big Trinity Creed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. And, and you know, the best place to go for any such confusion about the divinity of Jesus is to go to Hebrews chapter 1. Yeah. You know, mm. um, and it's, it's hard to read the language. And he just quotes a plethora of scriptures from Old Testament and applies it all to the Son. And so it's very difficult to go to any of these verses and say, you know, the Son just began at some point, um, mm -hmm. or God just begot him at some point. That's, so that's why we say that the, the, you know, when we explain or unpack the doctrine of Trinity, we always say God has eternally existed as the Father, Son, mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So these three persons within the substance of divinity has always existed. There is no divine being except in, in the form of these three subsistences. Mm -hmm. So there is, the, the, the father has always been the father because he has always had his son. Mm -hmm. Good. I have one more question if you want to ask any other. Okay. okay. So uh, one thing that you talked about in the class, which I thought was just incredible, um, was just about the cross and how um, when we think of the cross, we can sometimes think of ourselves so much and say, you know, the cross was God demonstrating his love for us, which is true, right? So nobody yeah. denies that. That's absolutely true. Um, however, c connect that with our discussion on the Trinity. Yeah, so this is where we go back to that passage of Scripture I read at the very beginning, John chapter 17 and verse 26, where Jesus says, so Father, I have revealed the doctrine of Trinity. That there are there is not just one God in heaven, but there are distinct persons, and you are the Father and I am the Son. I have revealed that so that my disciples will know that the love with which you have loved me is the love you have for them. So we, we get specificity as far as the love of God is concerned. Uh, when we become Christians and understand the doctrine of Trinity. So what do we now what we are understanding here is how does the Trinity affect our experience of salvation mm -hmm. uh, in, in the accomplishment of salvation we see the father elected a group of people and gave it to the son and the son came and died for them uh, at one point in history and then in later on in time the spirit applies that redemption in different times in our lives and brings us to faith so that is how uh, in the uh, accomplishment of redemption the trinity works out but in the experience of our 
a Christian life, in our communion, in our walk with the Lord, how does the Trinity affect our lives? Well, what is the gospel? What, what, where, what, is, the, what, is, the, what is the experience of Christians as they embrace the gospel? Well, first of all, here Jesus very clearly says, uh, the love of the Father is upon you. But even more specifically in uh, John chapter 17, the same uh, chapter uh, and in verse um, um, let me uh, look at that verse. Uh, so, anyways, you're just talking about verse, uh, verse okay. twenty-three. <laughs> verse twenty-three. I'm using uh, my friend's Bible, so you have to help me with that. Uh, verse twenty-three. You know, Jesus says that the Father has loved the disciples, even as He has uh, loved the Son. So we see the Father loves the disciples as he loves the son and then in john chapter 15 uh, jesus says that he loves us as he is loved uh, by the father mm -hmm. um, uh, and so uh, that's verse 9 verse of john nine, uh, yeah. 15 as the father has loved me so have i loved you so when we come uh, to saving faith in the lord jesus christ what the gospel accomplishes for us is the father loves us as he loves the son mm -hmm. and the son loves us as he is loved by the father what happens to us uh, as we embrace the gospel is the intra-trinitarian love between the father and the son is now shared with us mm -hmm. the love with which they love one another is the same love that is now given to us mm -hmm. that's the love that we receive when we come to saving faith and so that just takes this to a altogether higher level <laughs> you know god did not just uh, forgive us and say be there be my people what he has done is he has opened up his heart and has ushered us all the way in to experience that eternal fellowship and love that the three persons of the trinity was enjoying mm -hmm. and that is why when we believe in the lord jesus christ he fills us with the holy spirit because the Father and the Son enjoys communion with one another through the third person called the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And we are now filled with that Spirit. That's what Romans 5, 5 says, through the Holy Spirit. Now God has lavished us mm -hmm. with his love. And we find that even in the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? When, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the Lord Jesus, there is immediately a pronouncement of love and approval from the Father. And that's what happens to every believer when he receives the Holy Spirit. There is a heightened experience and assurance of the Father's love for that believer. And so we are assured in, into their communion, the intra-Trinitarian fellowship that was always there between the Father's and the Holy Spirit is now shared with us. And that's, that's just glorious for me as I think about it. And that's why uh, the Puritans, and especially John Owen, um, and this is something Presbyterians may not like it, but when, mm -hmm. when he edited the Westminster Confession to make the Savoy Declaration, he added one statement that this doctrine of Trinity is the foundation of all our comfortable dependence upon God and our communion with God. You know, so it, 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 the doctrine of Trinity makes our dependence upon God more comfortable and our communion with God really sweet. Mm -hmm. Because knowing uh, that there has been a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they love one another, and we are now assured into that relationship, makes our communion eternally great, infinitely great and sweet. And at the same time, um, their love for one another is what undergirds 
their love for us mm-hmm. so I can comfortably depend why can I trust that the Holy Spirit will complete the work of sanctification in me why can I trust that the that the son will complete his work of uh, redemption in me because ultimately the son and the spirit and the father are committed to each other mm-hmm. so the spirit is committed to glorify Christ Therefore, he will complete the work of sanctification in me. The Son is committed to glorify the Father. Therefore, he will complete the work of redemption, both in its historical accomplishment, which he has already done, but even in its future fulfillment. So we see um, there uh, the, com- the, the promises and the covenant of you know, loyalty that God has for us is ultimately undergirded not by God's love for us, but by the persons of the Trinity's love for each other. Mm-hmm. And that's why the, knowing that this God upon whom we depend is triune makes our dependence comfortable. That's why it says, you know, uh, Owen says, this doctrine of Trinity is the foundation of all our comfortable dependence on God. So knowing this doctrine of Trinity, you know, makes our experience of the gospel really rich. Mm-hmm. Boom. Mind blown. Yeah, seriously. I learn a lot from podcasts. I never thought I'd learn anything from our own. <laughs> this has been fantastic. This, is, this has really been great. We, we may try and uh, do something else. I have a couple ideas I want to ask you guys about later. But anyways, um, we have no reviews. But, no new reviews. But we do have six ratings on iTunes. Okay, so That's pretty good. Five of those are five-star reviews. And then the fourth one, I think someone's thumb slipped and they only gave us a four-star review. Uh, so if, if that was you, you can fix that and just go back just and, and, yeah. and just give us a five-star because I know it probably slipped. That's fine. Nobody's perfect. It happens to all of us. So I need to go back and check. I think we owe people books. You owe people books. Yeah. I don't know anybody book. I have to listen to our podcast again. What was... Uh, I don't know. I'll ask you later. We'll yeah, figure it yeah, out. Yeah, we'll figure it out later. But anyways, guys, if you uh, like this podcast or the other ones, and if you don't, do it anyways, give our podcast a solid review, um, a rating if you would, and share it on Facebook or... Uh, do people share things on uh, Instagram? I, I don't think... I don't know. I don't have an Instagram. I don't have an Instagram either. All I know is... This is the first time that you can probably share a five-star review with a good conscience, so please do so. Yeah, I think I might even share this episode. Yeah, I will too. Without shame. Okay, all right, guys. Until next time, remember, every Joe Schmo can grow some mo. Peace. Jay, you didn't say it. We're going to do this again. All right? We're going to do this again. Every Jay Schmo can grow some You said you listen to our podcast. I can't believe you. Wow. Peace, y'all.
we want to get some some recommendations here real quick of books to read. But before that, can you just tell us again why the 1689 no, was the best confession ever made? That's not what he said. Uh, we just had a whole conversation. No, off air. Don't, it happened. Don't don't. No. Uh, all right, give us some resources on the on the Trinity if people want to check those out. Yeah, as we wrap up, I would suggest three books. So the first book is my one of my favorite books is uh, Read Michael Reeves Delighting in Trinity. Anything and everything that I know of Trinity, I learned from Michael Reeves. So you can uh, read his book. It's very delightful read and. Uh, it's all about the practicality of uh, Trinity and how Trinity, in knowing Trinity makes us happy Christian. That's mm-hmm. the title, Delighting in Trinity. If you want something more substantial, more meaty, more uh, sort of academic, uh, read Robert Lethem's book, uh, The Holy Trinity. And he goes through the history, he goes through the Bible, uh, theology, and he goes through the uh, scriptures and everything. You know, it's, just, it's, a, it's a massive work, uh, a very good systematic treatment of the doctrine of Trinity, but it's a, it, it's more for the theologically minded. I won't give it to everybody walking into the church, but it's, it's a great book. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with everything Latham says, but it's a great book. And then uh, for some of our RP books <laughs> and Presbyterians, you know, there's uh, Our Triune God by Phil Riken mm-hmm. um, and also Michael Lefebvre, mm-hmm. RP pastor. Oh, and uh, it's a P&R publication. It's a good book. Uh, sort of a s- small book, but and it's probably the smallest of all three books I suggested. But it's a good, good, handy treatment of Trinity. Mm-hmm. So those are the three books I would say go ahead and read. And if you want uh, how the how to how the gospel presentation is richly affected by Trinity, I did this in the Sunday School. Uh, Google three two one go- gospel presentation. You can see how the doctrine of Trinity can be brought into the gospel presentation. So. One of my uh, conviction is that the gospel is the best illustration of Trinity, mm-hmm. as I just did with John chapter 17. As you unpack the gospel, you unpack the doctrine of Trinity. And if you want to see that practically worked out, just watch 321 video. Just go to the Google and just type 321 gospel presentation. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, man. Appreciate, Appreciate you joining us. Peace.